Hello and welcome to the ALC Par African Radio's discussion program. The discussion program brings together experts to reflect on a variety of current security issues facing Africa at local, national and international levels. Hello, I'm Desmond Davis. My guests today are Lucy Mabikwa from Zimbabwe, Ahmed Ibrahim from Somalia, Yasali Njai from the Gambia, and Shannon Arnold from South Africa. They are all members of the 2022-2023 cohort of the ALC at King's College, London, and in Nairobi. We're going to talk about the conflicts in Africa, the future of the continent, and leadership. Lucy, you come from a country that has been bedeviled by leadership problems. How are things moving now in Zimbabwe? Thank you, Mr. Davis. I would like to allude that the situation at the moment, it remains with a lot of dissent and a lot of young people in the population of Zimbabweans are not happy with what is happening in the state. We had hoped that the new government is going to usher in new reforms, though it was just a copy-paste. People had envisioned that there is going to be some progress, there is going to be some new developments. But I would like to indicate that now that same leadership is not giving what the people want. And now it's a situation that is now a serious issue with dissent, a nation which is engrossed in a serious corruption. There is need for commitment and political will for the leadership to have change for the progress of the people. Ahmed, the conflict in Somalia has been going on for such a long time since it became a failed state in 1991. Is there any hope for peace, security and unity in Somalia from your point of view? I will never lose the hope. I cannot say there's no hope for Somalia, but you know our geographical location and the the political grievances among our community and the unique structure of our community, which is based on clan, make impossible to take the country from a failed state, almost non-existence, to a state of recreation. And I think the kind of leadership that we need is yet to emerge. So that's what I see for Somalia now. Yasali, after 20 years of Yaya Jameh, you now have a new president. He's been there for five years. Has the effect of Jameh's iron rule worn off, or is it still affecting Gambians? I think the effects of 22 years of dictatorship, of poor governance, etc., it leaves a lasting effect. So in many ways, Gambians and Gambia itself is still reeling off the difficult time that we had during Jameh's time those dark ages of depression and dictatorship, I would say that in many ways that our past still manifests in our present. And also in many ways, we look into the future, to the near future, we do see that it persists for sure. Yes, uh, Shannon. With South Africa, of course, we've discussed it with Kinan, but we might like your own input. How are things going on in South Africa in general with all the uh, situation regarding the power and crime and that sort of thing? Are things really going in the right direction for South Africans? Thanks, Desmond, for the question. It's a bit of a pessimistic one, if I'm honest. I'd like to preface my answer by saying that I think South Africa is a great dichotomy. I think Mm. we're a very patriotic nation. I think that we find a lot of light and humor. I would just describe it as goldenness. We have a goldenness to us, but at the same time, we have a very dark side, and that dark side is becoming ever more consuming. So at this point, I would say the South African issue is a governance issue. 
we're going through, I would say, a pulling teeth moment. Um, we're aging. We're now 30 years into our democracy. The structures that we put in place in 94 through the transition are now being tested. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Heading into 24, we'll have quite a specific and important national election where the ANC might fall below a majority. And then we'll be looking at coalitional governance and what that brings for South Africa and quite frankly, the Southern African region will be quite interesting, be the first democracy in Southern Africa to enter into coalitional governance at a national level. And also another important condition here to preface is that our constitution doesn't make any room for the time period that a coalitional government needs to form. And um, it doesn't really outline what that should or ought to look like or for there to be some kind of transitional government. So we're entering into an, an exciting phase, I think, of our democracy. But at the same time, there's a lot of growing pains. There's a lot of challenges. Uh, yes, again, Shannon, given the fact that uh, you have all these divisions, not just in South Africa, in Africa, political and ethnic divisions, would you support the idea of coalition governments that could get countries through difficult times? Rather than, rather than one party being in total control. Should that be the case in Africa, really? I really can't make a, the broad assertion for the whole continent, but I can mm -hmm. speak from the South African perspective. I think that as a people, there is space for coalitional politics in South Africa, specifically because we have a diverse set of representative identities um, in the political sphere, and our proportional representation system accommodates that. So I think yes. coalitional government is the next step. But I don't think that our politics have got to a point where we as a people can accommodate political coalitional politics. I don't think our political parties are schooled in coalitional politics. We've had multiple coalitional governments at a municipal level crash and burn. They've left cities in very unstable and uncertain environments with mayors, toppling mayors. I can only imagine what that would look like if it was a president situation. But at the same time, I think there is space for a shifting between different perspectives and different, I, I suppose, different political viewpoints that coalitional governance can offer, which is really important. However, I would like to say that for it to be successful, if there were to be coalitional partners, they do need to be on the same page when it comes to few national issues. So in South Africa, yes. the South African case, they would have to be on the same page in energy. They would have to be on the same page in crime. So it can be both a representative and a unifying form of politics. Yeah, Lucy, what's your own view about coalition government in Zimbabwe? Because at independence, you had a coalition government between ZANU, PF and ZAP, didn't you? Of course, those the, such in, initiatives, Desmond, they work for the best for the country. And if we are to have a centralization government, it doesn't usually yield the other developments that are supposed to be happening. Because as it stands now, Zimbabwean government is a centralized state and there yes. are echoes of dissent from a number of regions and provinces in Zimbabwe. That service delivery does not always reach the others. We had devolution being put in place, but it happened in paper, an initiative that we're looking forward that is going to be bringing better results for the people. And as we speak currently, the environment is not enabling. The institutions are centralized. And as such, service delivery is only availed to a few individuals. The masses are suffering and the masses are not getting the delivery that they're supposed to be prepared. Come to issues of registration. You are the southern 
citizen and you're supposed to be told that you can get a passport in Harare, how does an old woman who has no means, who has no resources to be traveling to Harare to get a passport, a young woman who is, who is not employed to be going to Harare to get a birth certificate? So that issue of coalition of governments and the tools and frameworks such as devolution to be put in place properly so that people can enjoy good governance in such environments. So what you've explained really shows uh, why Zimbabwe doesn't seem to be working if you have that sort of centralized administration, isn't it? True, Desmond. As we speak currently, we need an inclusive dialogue of transformation, an inclusive purpose with a buy-in from all Zimbabweans that they need for change to propel the development and change in, in the administration and institutions to bring forward proper service delivery and the proper administration of how resources can be used to benefit all Zimbabweans. Yes, Yasali, as a young African myself uh, from the Gambia, how do you see young Africans positioning themselves for leadership in the future? Because that's what everyone is saying. Africa will change when the young people take over. But are they really ready? Are they really prepared, these young people, to take over the, uh, the task? I think that's a question where that's truly black and white. I think our leadership aspirations as young people should be informed by our conditioning, should be informed by the sort of education and reading we have received. And really, when you look at it, the sort of education or initiation we have had on African issues has been very much within the neo-colonial perceptions of what development should look like, of what uh, African unity should look like. I think in many ways, even the education systems do not exist to create young Africans who are predisposed to independent thinking or taking initiatives, for example, and just these little things that are key prerequisites to, to leadership. So in response to that question, I would say that it would definitely require very concerted efforts, which is both very individual and collective. I would say that there would be need as well in our aspirations for leadership to also seek our individual journeys to understanding the historical context of Africa's emergence, Africa's existence, different countries, how we emerged. And also even the current issues that we are battling, the key external factors and internal factors, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a lot of subtle and not so visible issues that are affecting Africa that require a lot of in-depth thinking and in-depth analytical thinking as well. So what I would say is that in order to truly get into leadership positions, we would have to start with ourselves internally, mentally. I think it's a very deep struggle for self-realization and it truly starts with the self. It's rather strange for you saying that uh, today, I mean, young people overwhelmed with colonization and neocolonialism. But I thought that should have been the case with earlier leaders in Africa were more nationalistic. They fought for independence and they led their countries to independence and they were Africans. But you're right. I mean, today, young people are more Europeans than Africans. So they're the ones who are letting the side down by not taking in the African culture that they're supposed to take in to help them to move forward. Yes, Sally. I agree with you. I think that what we have seen in the post-independence and even in during the years of independence, there was some deep conversations happening on African revolution, Africanness, and African-minded living and thinking and doing and being. 
but over the years, we have seen that there's been this intentional erosion of identity. Yes. And as a personal philosophy, I, I don't see self-realization and self-determination happening in the absence of authentic identity in any sense. And I think that's what we're battled with, who we are at a very core level that would determine who we want to become. Yeah, Shannon, what Yasale has been saying, do you think that the influence of uh, social media technology is actually eroding the uh, Africanness among young people? I think that's a very challenging question. <laughs> yeah, because we see, when I go to Africa, I see them watching European football, then I ask them, don't you have local leagues? Oh, no, we don't watch yeah. local leagues. So the, these are the issues. They're eroding the Africanness among young people. Okay, so I think this is the give and take of globalization. I think on the one hand, when you have these increased and dense communication networks that give you access to the world at large, um, there is the challenge that you have a local erasure. And I think when you're bouncing off of Yasali, there's this very important work of the reassertion and the remembering of African identities that becomes ever more challenging mm. in the face of that global kind of monolithic kind of culture that you're referring to. At the same time, though, social media can be a tool for that reassertion. So I do think it is a bit of a give and take. And I think that there are ways that social media has been used very creatively to kind of make a stake for different African identities. And yet at the same time, just like in other places of the world, social media has kind of has allowed the filtering out the things that make our cultures important. So a give and take, I suppose. I mean, Lucy, I mean, that's the point. I mean, in Africa, people take things without questioning them. I mean, even in Europe and America, governments are resisting some of these uh, intrusions by social media. But Africa, it is just free for all. Isn't that the case, uh, Lucy? I think you are speaking to more value, Desmond, that in Africa, there is need to eliminate the complexities. Because as we speak, that there is a lot of room for liberalization. And as we speak, there is need actually for that liberalization. Social media is a new game changer, a new information space for young people to be utilizing. And as young people, we are making a lot of contributions, making a lot of noise to the politics, to the policies, to the change that we want. And through that use of social media, it's a tool that is accessible to a lot of young people in the world at large for connectivity. However, there should be a proper structures and monitoring processes that should be used to check is this is there effective use of social media? Are the people using it for the benefit of yes. the nation and young people as large? But you see that in countries such as Zimbabwe, at some point, people wanting to protest and the government to ban the social media. Such abuses of social media and the state wanting to monopolize and abuse the social media should also be curtailed against. Ahmed, Somalia has always prided itself as being a one nation. You know, I mean, the, the more or less the same people. Can you just explain the divisions that we've seen for the last 30 years, which has led to a splintering of Somaliland and Puntland? What's the cause for all of this? I think one of the mistakes a public policy scholars made is calling or considering Somalis as one homogeneous ethnic group.
group. Yes. In fact, we have the oversight. We are one ethnic group with subethnicities. We have a Bantu society from Sensibar, what we used to call Sensibar back days, and some of Kenyan by origin. And many parts of our country are spoken Swahili widely. We also have people who speak Fano Rom language as their native language. We have Portuguese, uh, Indian, and Arab descent Somalis. Yes. And we have the main group, which are the nomad Cushitic people. So I think at the beginning, we were very diverse people. But because of being a, a Muslim majority, our yes. uh, forefathers thought that we are just one people and ignored their diversity, which if they could consider, become more uh, positive for them, for building a state. Another point causing our fragmentation was the project we established in Somalia was based on principles that are against the foundations of modern state. It was based on bringing all Somalis together, what we call uh, the Ban-Somalism. Yes. And that did not work. In 1977, June uh, 19, uh, or June 26, when Djibouti got its, its independence, the Djiboutians were forced to be separate country, while Somalia was expecting that Djibouti would be part of the Great Somalia. Yes. Similarly, the northern east of Kenya, although people voted to join Somalia, the Greek Somalia, the UK and other Western superpowers uh, ignored that the will of the people and, uh, you know, contributed to force people becoming part of Kenya and that deteriorated the situation. So I think the principles we established in Somalia was one thing, which was bringing all Somalis together. When that became failure and unrealistic, the Republic of Somalia then fragmented into smaller Somaliland, northwestern part, and the other parts like Puntland, northeast, become quite not connected to the central government. On top of that, we are tribe society, and before the colony, we used to have our own clans in a way that each clan will have their own territory separately without having any connection, whether it's business, commerce, to other neighboring clans. But I think we could survive if we earlier deploy the federalism mode, though the federalism now has been uh, endorse it, but it still it remains unsupportive because already some of the states ha- was there when the federal government of Somalia was declared. Like Buntland was established in 1998 and Somaliland was established in 1992. Yes. And then for that reason, there were already formed some state elements like having armed forces, having a police forces, having navies, government institutions like the judiciaries, and it became obstacle to reunite the these institutions. How Yes. Now the yes. current government is struggling to bring together the attorney general of the federal government of Somalia. Yes, Sally. How do you yourself view these ethnic divisions in, in African countries? I mean, they are holding the continent back, aren't they, these divisions? Yes, in many ways it is. I think many conflicts that we have experienced and continue to experience on the continent it's actually rooted in identity. And um, identity is also one of the core things about just being human, I think, as well. It's one of the things we hold close, as we should. But I think there's also been, to some level, our identities have been so deeply violated. And so I think now we exist in a way that our identities are things that we have to defend and assert in many ways. Our identities have been distorted We have also had, I think, African population in itself has been intentionally misconstrued. We we have been told who we are and who we're supposed to be. And I think as a collective, we have now perceived identity as something to defend and something to fight for. And that has also been the core of our issues politically, socially, and a lot of even 
violent conflicts that have happened have been rooted in these issues. So I think what I would say is that um, we would need to transcend these identities and sort of achieve a, a oneness in how we see ourselves in order to move forward. Well, Shannon, I mean, as Yasser is saying, to transcend these identities, how do you transcend these identities? The only way you can do that is to then divide these ethnically divided countries into independent countries, and that won't work. That's what you see in certain countries, like in, in, even in Nigeria, still want to be uh, separate states. So how do we go about it? Then we'll have hundreds and hundreds of independent states in Africa if we give each ethnic group a state so that it can control its own identity. I think it becomes quite a complex question, which I don't think I have the expertise to answer fully. But what I can say from my vantage point is that, so on the one hand, there is a value for rethinking and doing the work that Yasali is a champion of and has yes. been describing now, the decolonial work of figuring out what identities ought to look like or how should that be associated to ethnic identities? How should ethnic identities be politicized in a positive way? How can that then be um, mobilized into a national identity? Those are all questions that much smarter scholars are dealing with than, than I can pretend to answer now. But what I can say is that from my experience, when you're bringing very disparate groups together, and these groups come from distinctive cultural and identity experiences, and then those experiences are made to be real through very violent, uh, hierarchical, practices that exclude and include people, which is frankly a description of South African society, what that yes. requires is a reckoning of those material relationships. So a redistributive politics, but it also requires a very, very challenging objective of really living out a, a politics of diversity, which is not including people on the basis of for inclusion. It's the including, including people people through a very active way of recognizing not only who they are, but also your relationship with them and the realities that lie behind that relationship. So that's how I can offer to answer that question. Lucy, the issue of identity too. Uh, I mean, let's face it, you still have identity problems in Western countries. But the point is, these are not acute because these are societies that are developed and people are, are, are well looked after. I mean, maybe if we have that sort of situation in Africa, whereby the whole population is looked after, you will not have that great agitation for independence or uh, separate identity. Isn't that the case, uh, Lucy? Yes, the issue that you're bringing to table is very true. I think we need as African nations to have a very inclusive space for everyone and strengthen national capacities and institutions so that they cater for everyone. As just as you are speaking, we are facing such a, a case in Zimbabwe. You remember the genocide that claimed a lot of Matebele people. Yes of independence 1982 to 1987 and genocide that was never addressed and as we speak currently there is dissent and the ongoing conversation that there is now that it's no longer violent there is structural genocide that is still instigated against the Matebele people you take again in Nigeria it's the same story with the Yoruba people that are still trying to think that there is need for identity the issue of the Briamfra conflict in Nigeria so this issue of ethnic conflicts and ethnic ethnic identities need to be addressed so that there is a, a national consensus and a dialogue that is looking forward to cater for the needs of everyone, irregardless of which ethnic group that you come from, is into a, to have a flagship of leaving no one behind.
the agenda 2063, which is calling for leaving no one behind. Why should we have others that are being told that they are minorities, others that they are majority, yet the national cake should be shared for everyone. So if African governments can come to table and address such inequalities and reduce those vulnerabilities, there is room for improvement, there is room for progress for all nationalities and all tribes within the nation. Uh, yes, uh, Shannon, with 11 official languages in South Africa, is the country actually addressing its own issues of ethnic divisions? I think like most questions that are prefaced on the idea that is South Africa addressing, the answer is we hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, most of these things that are identified as problems of in, in the country, it's, it's a bit of a tough one because on the one hand, um, we have a very robust legislative uh, framework and policy architecture that should and ought to make these issues front and center. And there are things that are excellent about the South African landscape in this respect. So for, for instance, our public broadcaster has radio stations in every language. Yes. And it is, so the SABC reaches the largest radio audience mm -hmm. in the country. So when you look at representation in that way, I think South Africa does exceptional things. But then at the same time, English is still our language of business. It's our language of education. There are different disparate conversations about Afrikaans and retaining Afrikaans as a medium of instruction in, in tertiary institutions. I think South Africa, again, like it's the growing pains. And then at the same time, we lack a governance and the political will on the part of the ANC to really kind of navigate, mitigate and make productive use of those growing pains. You're listening to the discussion program on the ANC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Desmond Davis. My guests today are Lucy Obikwa from Zimbabwe, Ahmed Ibrahim from Somalia, Yasali Njai from the Gambia and Shannon Arnold from South Africa. They're the 2022-2023 fellows at the ALC at King's College London and in Nairobi. Yasali, what about tiny Gambia? Do you have an acute problem of ethnicity? I think Gambia would be one of uh, quite a uh, few African countries where we have in many ways achieved peaceful coexistence. We have a historical relationship of joviality and teasing and just jokes between the ethnic groups. However, in recent times, owing to our 22-year dictatorship and as well the past five years of transition, we have seen increasing politicized, tribalized politics, I would say, where political leaders would now try to weaponize tribe in order to gain a larger mm. following. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they use tribe to manipulate people. They use tribe and campaign on the basis of tribe, pitting tribes against each other. And this has definitely created some tensions, but it's definitely not at a scale that we would say is concerning. Although it's in its high points, particularly during elections, and it has called for some huge and very reasonable concerns as well because we have seen a lot of ethnic-related incidents of violence in some communities, particularly during election times. And I think it also calls for some serious interventions because these are things that have a way of escalating and taking on a life of their own. So there's been a lot of programming against politicized tribalism, et cetera, et cetera. And it's working. Yeah. Uh, Ahmed, the African Union had set 2020 to challenge on the guns. It didn't happen. Now it has set 2030. 
But will Somalia, which has been in conflict for such a long time, be able to silence the guns even before then? I think, you know, being very honest to myself, uh, I'm quite pessimistic to this, uh, because of the ability of my government to control the borders of the country. It's still very weak. We have the longest coastline in Africa, and we have you know, neighbors that are in conflict, like Yemen, and our coast guard has collapsed a long time ago. So I'm not sure if our country will be able to control the weapon supply that's uh, coming from the Middle East and other parts of the world uh, all the way to Somalia. And nowadays, you know, the situation in Ethiopia is getting worsened, yes. and we have the longest border with them. And surely, you know, uh, some weapons uh, might come, you know, in the wrong way. So I'm not sure if our government will be able to control the borderline. And if you remember, we had both former Soviet Union and the U.S. Uh, was very generous for giving us weapons between 1970s to 1990s during the Cold War. Yes, and that yes. weapon is still inside. So I think it will be difficult for us to manage all that stuff. Uh, Shannon, this is the problem with the proliferation of small arms and light weapons in Africa. No African country actually manufactures weapons. I think small arms and light weapons, but I think South Africa does. But how come then if it's only one country or one or two countries manufacturing these weapons, there's such a proliferation on the continent? How do these weapons get into the hands of these warlords in Africa? I think, uh, Desmond, this is when, you know, the conflict in Europe becomes quite pertinent. We tend to you know, have this, especially with the move to silence the guns, it is a continental effort, but unfortunately, the guns are made outside of the continent. Yes, yes. And the militarization um, that we see now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, I think you'll have to fact check my answer with this, but I do know that um, military spending is at its highest it has ever been between 22 and 23. Yes. So um, there is a contradiction in terms here because we have a cause for peace and yet we know that there is a direct relationship between the degree of militarization, the amount globally spent on um, the manufacturing of arms and the proliferation of small weapons and the connection then between small weapons um, proliferation and conflict in Africa. So it is a continental discussion, but it's a global discussion. And, and unfortunately, the other linkage here is um, channels of organized crime. We now have, I think South Africa's homicide rate as of the last quarter of 2022 was 42 people per 100,000. In some areas of the country, it was 70 people per 100,000. And for some context, yeah. if you were to compare that to um, a country in, in active conflict, normally those numbers are around 100 to 100,000. So it shows you the level of violence in South Africa, especially the level of homicide. And that, that, that's been related to the increased amount of illegal arms, small arms in the country. And that proliferation of small arms in South Africa is directly connected to organized crime. And how does Africa then deal with this issue of uh, stopping the weapons? Because I mean, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council are supplying weapons to 76% of conflicts around the world. So what should the UN and the African Union do to stop the weapons flowing into Africa illegally? Yes, Ali. I think it would take a lot more intentionality in, in, in how we lay down the rules and the laws, but also how we implement them. There's a lot of conversation on the fact that 
yes, these weapons are created outside of the continent. So how do the weapons get into the continent? I think it would require a lot more African agency in how we determine what's... Because really, I think there's a lot of over-reliance on external support. And this would also, in many ways, affect how much of a say we can have on what gets into our continent and how the African issues are sorted, how African agency is exercised, and to what extent it is exercised. So I think it really does start to at a very fundamental level of building up on intentionality and African agency, laying down the rules and the laws and having a say in exactly how it's implemented, what's allowed and what's not. That would be the fundamental concern. Lucy, what about uh, Zimbabwe? I mean, is there a proliferation of uh, weapons there, weapons in the, wrong, in the wrong hands, or has the government got a monopoly over weapons and violence in Zimbabwe? The situation in Zimbabwe, Desmond, is the government's monopoly of weapons because as it stands, well, there is a militarization of state and I think there is need for the people's voices and people's interests that should dominate the intellectual and political to reduce this persistent struggle that we're facing in Zimbabweans. Because, and currently we witnessed the surge in number of crimes, violent through arms, and it was also reported in the media that a lot of these crimes are actually perpetrated by the people who are in the military, people who are in the police force, because of the descent of the unfair rewards of labor. So if we have a lot of these voices from the nationals that perpetuate the change and the need for transformation in that movement of arms and the government actually should be putting in place proper structures of monitoring and evaluating how these arms are being used because instead of these people being the ones that are supposed to be protecting the citizens the citizens are afraid of the very people that are supposed to be protecting them ahmed we were talking about the future leadership of uh, african countries I mean, with all this chaos in Somalia, when there's peace, are there Somalis ready to take up the challenge of uh, leading their country? I think, as any other politician in the continent, during the election, we have plenty of promises. But uh, I'm not sure uh, why that promises cannot be fulfilled. I trust there is more challenge than any other country. You know, uh, ruling a country without a constitution without a social contract, without the core national institutions, or without willing from the people that to build their country together is quite challenging, a very big challenge, honestly. And the, uh, for the future, I see that at the end, I'm not sure, but what I feel is that Somalia will end up being balkanized into small states. Yes. And uh, in that, I think, they might reach better. If I look how, how many airports have been built in the last time, or how many ports have been built by the investment of the people, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Like uh, the Graat port, which was funded by the people of Puntland of Somalia, and which was implemented by the people itself. And the airports that have been built by the Somali people in their own initiative, and their entrepreneurship in the business, I trust they, they, they might succeed more being balkanized, but I'm not sure if that also, on the other hand, will let them survive in the, in the increasing regional threat and the school threat of the, of the world, you know, the general yeah. school threat. Yeah, that's very important when you said that things were built by the Somali people. What is the influence of the Somali diaspora in Somalia itself in terms of peace, security, and development? 
we have blunt skilled uh, technocrats in the government, whether it's a federal member states or whether it's the central government of Mogadishu. Yes. And these people come back with skilled, with a knowledge, and remittance plays a role uh, in our GDP, a big portion of our GDP. So that means we rely more the family support, the remittance that has been sent by our diaspora community across the world. Yes. So uh, they play a good role, both economically and uh, technically, you know, uh, in the skill transfer, knowledge transfer from the developing world to, to the country back home. And I, I trust, like, though some of them, because of taking the opportunity of the clan structure, they might be placed in a good position without having a proper career for that position, with proper requirements and the qualification to run such a, a big position, yes. like being Minister of Education or commander of the National Army, which requires itself skills and competence to, to run such positions. Yes. So uh, in, in such case, they have both positive and negative back home, but more positive. Yes, yes, Ali. We're talking about the African diaspora. The Gambian diaspora, I think, contributes a lot to the, the Gambian economy. There's even a dedicated department for that. Uh, how has that been, been playing out? I mean, has the Gambian diaspora been helping in terms of economic development in the Gambia? Yes, I think the diaspora has been one of the leading contributors to the country's GDP, believe it or not. Remittances account for a very high percentage. I'll have to get the numbers, but a very, for a very high percentage in the country's GDP. And I think it's a very unique situation. I'm not sure that it is the case for any other African country. Um, I know remittances are always high all over the continent. For it to be the leading source of income, I think that's an amazing issue, really. And I would say it also really just points out to poor governance as well, because yes. remittances is not a dependable source of income. It's not an industry. It's not state. There's no way you can... It's, it's as though Gambians are living or achieving a certain quality of life as a result of external funds that are coming into the country. That means that a lot of people in Gambia are not able to earn enough money for a standard quality of life, yes. which is a, a tragic, a tragic fact, really. And it really just points out to the poor governance, to how we have failed to identify and hone our industries from the arts to um, even agricultural production, tourism, etc. We have had all these potential sources of income that has been dwindled and um, just really not honed enough, not cultivated enough to, to serve as a possible means of income. Yes. Exactly, Shannon. I mean, don't you agree that uh, remittances, which came to $100 billion last year from Africans, are just doing the, the, the work for African governments, providing social safety net, which the government should be doing in the first place? Um, yes, Desmond, I think that's quite an astute observation. I think it, the conversation is quite interesting because I think that there's an opportunity here that African governments are also not taking a hold of or the diaspora is not taking a hold of. Specifically, they, I understand if I were to live overseas and send money home, I wouldn't be comfortable giving it to the South African government. I would prefer to give I it. I know. Well, that's the problem, yes. But, um, but in South Africa, we have this thing called a solidarity fund. Mm -hmm. um, and that was established during COVID. 
and any public citizen could contribute to the solidarity fund. And the idea was that it would be used for the things that the state could not provide. And yes. I think that those kind of public funds, which some exist in South Africa, but it's become more of a trend, I know, in the States, where you have larger pension funds or hedge funds that are catered towards a particular political interest. So investing in, say, companies that align with your vision of sustainability or your ethics or whatever the case may be. I think that there's a missed opportunity there on the continent forming in the private sector funds um, that remittances can be put into to then grow an economy at a local level. Yes, but at least with South Africa, you've got proper financial regulations. I mean, your diaspora can invest in companies. You've got good Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Do they invest in, in companies there to help them grow? Yes, definitely. So the Johannesburg Stock Exchange also, um, it's a bit of a tough one because obviously the brand hasn't been performing as well as it used to. But the Johannesburg Stock Exchange in terms of its long term, say, return is very successful. And just as a, a secure investment, the projections also going into the next 20 years are very positive with the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. So yeah. I, I understand where you're coming from when it comes to um, the security of investing in companies. We have large companies in South Africa. So one that comes to mind is NASPERS, which obviously owns 10% of Tencent. We have large insurance companies, which are all active on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Yes. But, but actually, despite all the ups and downs of the South African economy and its businesses, uh, just this week, there were four South African tech startups that were uh, pitching for investment in, in the city of London. So things are not that bad economically for South Africa, are they? I think this also comes to um, South African resilience. That kind of rounds up what I said to your first question. There's a lot of dark news that comes out of the country, but as a people, we're very resilient, but we're also yes. quite entrepreneurial. And mm. I think about lots of different things. So as just a little anecdote, I had to mail a letter here in London. I haven't used a post office for about 12 years because our postal yes. office has collapsed. But we have in its place a very efficient and um, successful logistics and courier industry. Mm -hmm. So for one startup that's been really successful in South Africa in the last five years has been this thing called pedo lockers. So you can no longer buy, you can no longer own a post box in South Africa, but mm -hmm. you can rent a pedo locker. So again, you see, see that the social entrepreneurship kind of opens up, yes. Yes. Uh, solves problems where governance hasn't. Yes. Uh, Lucy, I mean, of course, Zimbabweans depend a great deal on the diaspora for the sustenance. What's the situation there in terms of the, the people, Zimbabweans and the government when the money comes in? It's very true, Desmond. I would like to allude that the diaspora remittances are contributing a lot to the livelihoods in Zimbabwe because we have a lot of influx of our people in all over the world, especially in the diaspora. So because the current situation in Zimbabwe, the economy is informal, we are relying a lot on the remittances and they've contributed a lot to the household food security and living standards. The livelihoods have been sustained through these remittances. And I would like to even allude that currently they are contributing a lot to the infrastructural development, especially in the rural areas where they are coming from. And the entrepreneurship and the small scale businesses that are owned by a lot of people in the diaspora. So they are contributing a lot to the economy and the changing or living of standards of the people people 
especially the old people that are receiving. However, mm. I would like to allude that this has also become a dent in the economy because it has led a lot to the dependent syndrome. The industries are dead. We have no industries in Zimbabwe, yet we have a lot of skilled personnel that is out there in the diaspora, channeling that expertise and skills in industries that are not of the country. So the diaspora is bringing in a lot of merits and demerits to the people of Zimbabwe. But in South Africa, as Shannon said, there's resilience there and then things are moving. Why can't Zimbabwe just follow the example of uh, South Africa? The point that Shannon is making is very valid and it's very true because you discover that the South African economy is very vibrant as we speak and a yes. lot of actually are flocking to South Africa. We have a lot of Zimbabweans that are working in South Africa and also contributing to that development. And with the case in Zimbabwe, like I have alluded before, that there is a militarization of state, the infrastructure is dead, the institutions and the administrations are not working properly, hence the influx of these Zimbabwean nationals out of Zimbabwe and the industry is not lucrative and offering any opportunities for young people. Uh, Ahmed, it's been reported that the Islamic forces in, in Somalia are dwindling. How true is that? And is that a good sign that uh, the conflict might come to an end sooner rather than later? The Islamic ideology, which was based on Wahhabism, is declining across the world, not only us, starting yes. from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. The transformation of this ideology, you know, ruling the whole world in its Islamic principles, is going to be end very soon. And the case of Somalia, people are tired for the trying to rule of these groups, particularly the area they were ruling. They exploited the people, took over their livelihoods, whether it's firms, and imposed taxations that are beyond their capacity. And I think they are about to end. But the one drive that fueled them was uh, the international intervention. For sure, they got finance, not only locally, but international land, since this was a blocks war. So I'm not sure how long these uh, international actors who have been motivated by some negative policy objectives yes. to, you know, invest in these groups. I don't know how long if they have the motive yet to continue or if they are disappointed by the denial of the locals in regard to these uh, rebel groups. I'm not sure. But I see a lot of hope when I look how our young people are thinking against the Wahhabism ideology and against the, the idea of jihadism. I trust our education system has been completely changed. Shannon, I mean, South African resilience, which you've talked so much about, uh, are you confident about the way Africa is moving, that things will change for the better sooner rather than later? I am confident in, in the capacity of Africa's young people. I'm confident in our vision for the future. I think what comes with that is the follow-through. And how I see that actually coming to fruition is leveraging more pan-African networks across different youth, civil society, and social kind of counterculture movements. I think that's where our power really lies. And I think that's where we have an opportunity for change in the future. Um, what about you, Yasali? That's not an easy question at all, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> am I confident in Africa's future? I think I am maybe not confident in it, but I am hopeful. I'm hopeful that we, we will come towards some sort of reckoning, some sort of point where we will reach a collective reflection on 
what next, you know, where we will actually get to a point we will realize that there's a need for us to be intentional about creating a new world, basically, you know, a more humane world that accommodates Africans and accommodates the world and does not exclude us and does not dictate our existence. So yeah, I won't say I'm, I'm confident, but I'm hopeful that that there will be that turning point. What, what about you, Lucy? I personally believe that there is hope for Africa in Africa with the difference and in Africa with the development. If only we need to change a lot of interventions, there is room for opportunity actually. If only there is commitment, political will, and the use of our natural resources to channel that change. So room is still there for opportunity and change. And there is need for that commitment and a lot of changes need to happen for the development to take place. And Ahmed, you hope that things will change for the better sooner rather than later in Somalia. The increasing education system and the, you know, the number of enrolling to the schools, educational institutions, and the, this globalization of today that uh, through the social media, I think the, the intellectual, public intellectual of our people are understanding each day the importance of coming together and solving uh, their problems in a manner that's good for all. And I see positive, you know, in some angles, while, you know, if I come back to the leadership, I see that those who can solve this issue are yet to be emerged. Lucy Mabikwa from Zimbabwe, Ahmed Ibrahim from Somalia, Yasali Injai from the Gambia, and Shannon Arnold from South Africa. The 2022-2023 fellows at the African Leadership Center at King's College London and Nairobi, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the discussion program on the ALC Pan-African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at ALC Radio numeral number one. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com.